Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Okay, welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I have the great honor of talking with uh, somebody who I've been uh, Instagram stalking for years now. Um, a really, really fascinating guy, Ryan Wolf. Um, so, uh, welcome, Ryan. Thank you, John. It's good yeah. to be on the podcast. So, why don't you? I always like to have have guests sort of introduce themselves to the listeners rather than me uh, introducing them. So, um, why don't you sort of tell our listeners who you are, what you do? Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, I, my name is Ryan Wolf, um, and I started out, uh, I guess what I'm going to get into in this segment is that, um, I'm a wildlife biologist and how I started to that kind of field is I went into McMaster university as an undergraduate student uh, into environmental science and biology. And I quickly learned that biology was kind of the route that I wanted to go and, uh, I fell in love with, with ecology and um, kind of just took it from there. I went through a five-year program uh, so I could do a uh, co-op degree where I got to do some work-study program in the middle of it. And then after that, I worked for uh, Ontario Nature doing some conservation work, uh, mainly with herps and reptiles and amphibians. And now I'm going into my master's degree, uh, studying snake ecology. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what, uh, I mean, what are some of the interesting questions in terms of snake ecology? Like in terms of like what roles do they play in different ecosystems or? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Cause I kind of left that as a broad topic there. Um, so I am kind of focused into the spatial ecology realm because of the nature of my study. Um, so I'm, I'm studying the blue racer snake on Peely Island. Uh, and that's the only place that exists in all of Canada. Yeah. Um, and to our listeners, if you have not seen one of these things, go and do Google blue racer. <laughs> it is an absolutely, it's a stunningly beautiful snake. Like it doesn't look, it looks like the first time I saw a picture of one, I thought it was photoshopped. Yeah, like, it doesn't gorgeous. look real. 
Yeah. But anyway, so what you're so you're actually like tracking their movements on on the island. Kind of. So they it was the only place to exist in all of Canada, and even on this island, they only live on part of it. Um, and so what we don't know because they haven't been studied in over two decades uh, in Canada. We don't know their distribution on the island. We don't know kind of their um, population structure, the age dynamics. We don't know if it's um, if they're kind of at the stage of more recruitment or if it's a lot of older individuals that are left. Uh, and we don't even know how many uh, snakes are left. Well, 20 years ago, it was estimated that it's around 200 individuals and declining. Um, so we're. I'm trying to get a... Uh, an estimate of how many individuals individuals are on the island and where they are, and that's kind of where it falls into the spatial ecology realm. Um, yeah, but there's, there's racer racers are are an odd are are really odd species when it comes to to islands because you know they have like I remember when my wife and I went on our honeymoon to Antigua, we went like touring around around Antigua, and I remember we went on this one. Uh, tour and they took us it was like you know really kind of like low budget safety <laughs> optional kind of caribbean tour yeah man whatever <laughs> you know and then we went and we went to this island called i think it was called um if i remember correctly bird island it was a bird. small little island and they uh, and the guy told us he said that there's this rare kind of racer called the antiguan racer and it's only found on this one island um, in the old, in the whole world. Hmm. And he said they were almost uh, driven to extinction by rats and cats and things like that. And so they just they did this like aggressive program. And really, like this island is tiny. Right? It's really really small. Hmm. And like you can walk the whole island and you know take you twenty minutes. <laughs> like uh, and they but really really small and. So they just went and eradicated all rats. And I think rats were the big problem mm-hmm. from the island. And there was just like a small population of these Antiguan racers. And you know, there's not even, there's like a couple trees on the island and, and lots of bushes. So you can just go up to any, <laughs> you know, to the bush and like, there's the Antiguan racer. <laughs> like they're, <laughs> like so they're cool. right there. Like they're, they're not. They don't really have anywhere to hide. <laughs> like uh, they're just there, and they live off of like bird eggs and some other things and stuff like that. But right. you know, and then you have uh, on that uh, one of the more recent David Attenborough nature shows. They had the uh, Galapagos racer. That's right, yeah. chasing after the like marine iguanas and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like it's this species that I, I don't know. It, are they special in that respect that they they can live in these weird island ecosystems where they're maybe not having a lot of genetic diversity and they're just these small little micro populations. So I'm not, I'm not a geneticist by any means. Um, and you have to have a certain, but I do know that you have to have a certain um, population size. So you don't have like the impact of inbreeding and cause that can, that can cause your population to go to extinction by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you need to have some sort of a large enough gene pool um, for there be for those genes to kind of flow uh, between different individuals and not stay within the same family. I guess you could call it. Um, 
but in terms of being isolated on islands and such, I don't think it's a specific thing about um, necessarily the racer snake itself, um, but more so about the biology behind it. And I think that's because they're honestly the coolest snakes. I, uh, it's funny because all, all people in the United States, racers are extremely common. Um, there's a lot of different subspecies, but they basically all fall under the same category of the northern racer, the North American racer. Um, but they're extremely common throughout most of the United States, uh, and so people don't really give them any any sort of credit, kind of like garter snakes. Um, but they are an extremely extremely intriguing and interesting species. But I think what allows them to able to live on islands like that um, is that they're extreme generalists so they will eat anything and everything they can get into their mouth <laughs> and, and they really do they, they eat they eat frogs mice birds other snakes like they they just kind of eat what they can um and they will little kinda, will, will little ones eat insects yep Yep, the little ones eat insects. Adults will also eat insects sometimes, but rarely. They they tend to um, stick to mammals and uh, like small mice and things like that. But they also do eat all those other things. They, so I think when you kind of are on an island like that, let's say the Antiguan racer that you saw, if they've adapted to eat the bird eggs, maybe not every species can do that. Whereas they have no problem living off of that diet. And so that's one, uh, hypothesis that you can per- perhaps have to why they could be living there as opposed to another species of snake. Um, yeah. Well, that would actually give a, a big advantage. Cause I mean, even, even a, a highly, highly successful snake, like the, the garter snake, you know, they still generally speaking, they have, they'll eat like certain things, you know, amphibians and worms mm-hmm. and, you know, certain things like that. And that, that's usually, you know, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they usually, I know if you're keeping them as pets, like I did when I was a kid, you could not get them to, or at least I and my friends, we couldn't get them to eat mice or, <laughs> or insects or anything like that. They would only eat basically amphibians, goldfish and worms okay. Right. And however, I've heard these stories um, from people saying that there are these isolated populations of garter snakes um, on islands in uh, the Maritimes in Nova Scotia. And there's some uh, down in islands off of South Carolina mm-hmm. and off of Maryland where you have these isolated populations that somehow have figured out they now eat um chicks and bird eggs because mm. that's pretty much like all there is on for most of the time on the islands where they are like there and so they they somehow figured it out yeah right? <laughs> i mean have you heard that too yeah it's it's super cool actually and like i kind of made the comparison there a second ago with the garter snake to the racer and it's because they are both extreme generalists and garter snakes and like yeah that's a definitely a specific example um of those islands that they have adapted to eat the food source that's available to them um and when i think when you're you said you were a little kid trying to feed these snakes 
I think when they get accustomed to the diet and they're allowed to kind of be picky, they pick their favorites. Um, but when they come across something, they will eat it. Even in Ontario, I've seen a few, I've seen one time myself and a few documents from other people of, uh, garter snake eating a small bird, like a chick, the fledgling, um, they've also eaten eggs and mice. I see, actually I see garter snakes eat mice all the time, uh, in my research. That's wild. Um, Yeah. So you, you actually see them eat the mice or you see it in their scat? Uh, I've never seen them fully eating the mouse. I've seen, uh, one sitting kind of like beside the mouse. I flipped the board and it like struck at the mouse. Maybe he thought it was me trying to get him or someone was attacking him or something, but it struck at the mouse and I put the board back down. And the next day that mouse is gone and that snake has a big food bowl. <laughs> so like I've, I've seen that many times where uh, that's wild. Yeah. Where a garter snake is sitting inside a, a mouse nest with a big belly full. So, <laughs> so what are the things, I mean, the, the thing that I've always noticed that I found most charismatic and interesting about racers is, is that crazy thing they do where, they'll be in in grass that's like about kind of i don't know halfway up your yeah. your leg and they do that thing where they kind of like and they go up in periscope <laughs> yeah. and they look and so you just suddenly you'll see this like snake head and it looks like something from a cartoon like you're like i can't believe that's real it's you know you just periscoping around and checking out like what's going on is i mean I don't know. Are there other? I, that's the only snake I've seen doing that. Um, I mean, the, well, the indigo snake and racers are the only ones I've seen doing that. But um, are there others, or is that a kind of a uniquely sort of racer thing? It's uh, funny because I've seen it a few times in some random species. So I I do work mostly, obviously, with the blue racer, like we were talking about. But um, I also kind of work with the eastern fox snake. On Peely oh, Island, that's that's my yeah. absolute favorite. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. They're, oh, yeah. they're one of mine too. Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful, gentle giants. Um, but I've actually seen a fox snake do that, and I've seen garter snakes do it, but only a few times. It's definitely not uh, a common trait. Hognose do it, but they, of course, flatten their necks out more um, mm-hmm. because they have that capability. Um, and it's kind of different. So the racers and indigos they can either do um, what you're talking about as like a, a periscope where they stick their head out of the grass in curiosity. And so that's just a, a kind of like an alertness where they're looking around, checking their surroundings, making sure everything's clear, everything's safe. I'm not going to get eaten or anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but what they do, like the indigos, they kind of cock their head sideways a little bit and they move through the grass <laughs> as they're going. They stare at you and try to flatten their neck as much as they can. Obviously, it's not like a like a hog nose or a cobra or something that mm-hmm. can actually flatten its neck, but it it stretches it a little bit, um, and just to make itself look kind of bigger, meaner, and scarier. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it it makes that uh, kind of defensive display, and often it comes with a rattling tail, and they'll kind of slither away while staring at you like that 
And uh, that's what I've seen uh, a fox snake and a garter snake do before, and multiple garter snakes. But it's definitely more common in the racer genus. And I think, uh, yeah, indigos definitely do it as well. Of course, the, the dry marcon. Um, but I'm not sure I would, my guess would be that maybe coach whips or something like that would do it. Um, yeah. I've never seen them in the wild. I've never, I've never been somewhere. Uh, well, actually I've been to a couple places that had them, but I've never seen one of those in the wild. I mean, the coach whip? I would love to. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. I was, I was trying to explain this to, to a friend of mine the other night we were out having dinner and, uh, I was explaining, he was just complaining about, he said, he, you know, he has this friend who lives in, in Calgary and they grew up together and she's got caught inside this like sort of political online political echo chamber where she's like saying all this like crazy fake news stuff <laughs> to him and everything. And like, he's like, Oh, you know, social media, the internet, it's like killing us and everything. I said to him, I said, you know, it's funny because I've noticed that I participate in a, a number of online communities and there's one kind of, you know, what, uh, what my wife calls like, she's like, are, you know, I'll be on my phone and she's like, are you looking at her porn again? <laughs> and it's, I'll be on Instagram looking at like all these people who post <laughs> people like you post like these are amazing. Here's what I flipped today. And oh, this is my lifer. You know? Yeah. And like all yeah. these like, you know, uh, different things. And uh, there's sort of the kind of the herpetology online communities. There's uh, a whole entomology kind of circle with bug guide net and things like that. Mm. And then there's like, there's various kind of, bird watching communities and you know and one one thing i noticed with all of these communities is that um people in general are really really nice and really generous and really respectful and you being a part of those communities i would say nine nine you know you can tell me what you think but i i find like 99 percent of the time being a part of those communities makes everybody in the group smarter like you learn way more it's sort of classic like what human language and, and is for you know you learn more and people are really happy when you point out people are interested in what the truth is mm-hmm. and very and very humble about it and so if you post something this has happened to me a thousand times you know you post like a butterfly or you post like a salamander or you post like uh, you know something, and you and you say, "Hey, look, I found this thing." Uh, somebody will say, "Oh, actually, it's actually this," uh-huh. um, and here's why. And the person will be like, not you know, offended or upset. They'll be actually really, "Oh, thank you so much for like setting me straight." And they'll go and like change the caption. Yeah, and I've seen this happen. I see this happen like probably hundreds of times a week, where uh, people defer to expertise uh they respect expertise they respect knowledge they're actually interested in the truth and participating in that community that online community makes everybody um smarter and and helps them to sort of get to the truth and i just it's amazing to me that um and you know and i've heard that there's similar thing going going on in a lot of kind of sciencey 
online communities. And it's just, it's interesting that for some reason, when it comes to politics and perhaps yeah. religion, religion as well, um, it seems to have the opposite <laughs> effect where yeah. people, the, the people get involved in these online communities, you know, whether they're left wing, right wing, libertarian, you know, whatever they are, it doesn't really matter actually. Um, they just get into these echo chambers where everybody gets stupider the more they participate in that community. It seems <laughs> like, to be that way sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But have you noticed that about the kind of the, the sort of herpetology communities? People are just so nice. Uh, you know what? I mean, for the most part, there's, I mean, there's always going to be the other side, right? Um, and I think just because I've been in it for a long time, well, by the other side, you mean the the pet trade people? Uh, no, I just mean by people not not as as positive. Um, yeah, you can you can do pet trade for an example. Um, yeah, I don't have anything to do with those people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, not not really but, because I don't have not not really because I have a moral objection to them. Although I I guess I kind of do sometimes. Um, it's more that it's just, um, for me, it's just apples and oranges. Like seeing a picture of something you found today mm-hmm. when you were out in the forest, in the wild, for that, that is really exciting to me. Um, seeing yeah, a I picture of somebody's, somebody's pet snake in their, you know, eating like a, a white mouse from the pet store. Yeah. Absolutely no interest to me, like whatsoever. I was trying to explain well, this to my wife. Like, it's yeah. just apples and oranges. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you right now. Like, I used to keep tons of uh, uh, snakes and and frogs and lizards. Actually, my first pet ever was a tiger salamander when I was six years old. But um, wow! So the thing is, though, I don't keep them anymore, and that's not because I don't like the snakes or love the snakes. And it's neat because the pet trade, you can see something so exotic you probably wouldn't have seen before. And if you do it right, if it's captive bred and stuff, I'm, I'm all for it. But uh, I think you lose some of that uh, appreciation for the snake when it's sitting in a cage on your desk all the time, you know? Oh, and, I, I completely know. I kept tons like you. I kept my room growing up as a kid yeah. all through my teen was like a pet shop. It was just wall to wall terrariums. Yeah. yeah. I had yeah. like all lizards, salamanders, snakes, everything. Now yeah. we have um in our house we have um my son Indy, named after the Indigo snake. Nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um Indy uh, when he was I think about eight we got him like a baby corn snake, a captive bred oh, corn, nice. corn snake um, for his birthday. And we still have that snake. It's like about 10 years old, very healthy. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, like that we have, that's the only, and then um, for Father's Day last year, my amazing, wonderful sons got me an axolotl. Uh, for oh, Father's nice. Day, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and so we've got a, in, an aquarium with an axolotl, and then for my birthday they got me another one. And so we have two axolotls in each cool. in their own aquariums, and we have a a snake. But I have no desire to to buy. Yeah, I, I like when when Corny, that's the corn snake's name. When Corny dies, uh, I will. I don't think I'll ever own 
a reptile again. I mean, axolotls yeah. are a special case because they're they're basically alive in the pet oh. trade now. They're almost extinct in the world. Yes, they're, so, they're um, and they're very much like a, a, a. They seem to be living fairly full lives in the aquarium as long as they have lots mm-hmm. of space. Well, um, but yeah, but a snake inside a cage is just it's it doesn't have any of the magic and the no. energy and the the charisma that they have in the wild i can tell you like on my surveys for snakes races are extremely fast snakes um but so they're an exception but sometimes like other things like this too you spot (laughs) maybe just a glimpse of the snake going through that tall grass and all of a sudden you've dropped everything in your bag and like you've got your camera in your bag it's worth lots of money you drop it you know like that thing gets thrown on the ground you're filled with adrenaline yeah. and you're sprinting as fast as you possibly can through this grass chasing the tail end of the snake <laughs> and i've done it so many times <laughs> it's the most exhilarating yeah <laughs> but and it, and it gets to the point where like you can just you don't even have to see them you can just hear the sound that they make when they're passing through the dry leaves. I did it today. And you're, you're already <laughs> like diving. Like, yeah. I so what did you today. catch today? Uh, uh, that one that I just heard was just a garter snake, an Eastern garter snake. But uh, we, I went out in the field today because uh, it got so hot today. Uh, we yeah. did the uh, Eastern hog nose survey in the morning. Um, and so we got one Eastern hog nose snake before it got really hot out. Uh, and then we switched to do um, queen snake surveys. So queen snakes and uh, water snakes and those kind of things, you can kind of survey for them any time throughout the day, no matter how hot it is, because their semi-aquatic behaviors allow them to bask almost all day long. They keep going. They live right on the bank of the river or lake, um, and they'll be basking on the side, and then they'll go hunt in the water. And because this they go in the water, which is so much cooler, instantly they lose that body temperature every time they need to forage. So they have yeah, to come yeah. back out all the time and bask. So you can you can survey for them all day long, whereas other snakes might be underground. Um, but yeah, so we, we went and did the, those surveys today, and we got uh, a, quite a good number of them. Um, and they're kind of like you said with the, a ringneck snake uh, at the beginning there before we started. Um, they kind of have localized populations uh, in Ontario where I am and they don't really know entirely why or um, how they got to necessarily where they are because they're so disjunct from each other. One could be like hundred kilometers away from the, the next closest one. And uh, so we, we do quite a bit of surveys just to check on the population levels at certain ones uh certain populations that uh we monitor at least yeah so, that's what it's like in quebec with the smooth green snakes they yeah, they just they're these true. little tiny island populations um some of them are literally on islands in the middle of the st <laughs> Saint- lawrence river but otherwise they can be up in the you know some random place in the laurentians and down in the eastern they'll just be one little spot where they're found and they're not found anywhere else in the surrounding area. And that is like, they know uh, David Green at McGill, the herpetologist okay. has actually looked into this and those populations are uh, 
little kind of isolated islands. So genetically, you can tell that they've been mm-hmm. just breeding with other members of that little community for a very long time. It's like a little backwoods town or something. Everybody's married to their cousin. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's just a small, but they don't seem to have any ill effects from it. Oh, that's good. Not yeah. yet. You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a, as long as the population is big enough and then breeding hasn't become too drastic and it should be okay. But yeah, that's an interesting species. Um, and it's kind of, uh, interesting to me, especially that those ones are isolated kind of populations, Island populations to call them up there because it's like that in Southern Ontario, um, where they exist in these small pockets and nowhere else. But, uh, as you go north, they kind of ex- have a larger expanse where you can kind of find them throughout. Um, and I think they used, probably used to be like that in southern Ontario, but because it's so developed now um, and a lot of farms with insecticides and stuff like that, I think just most of them were wiped out and just a few remaining populations can exist. But even within those, like these small areas where you know they exist, uh, like one of the counties I work in, Norfolk County, um, they're in that county throughout a lot of that whole area, but in very specific spots, which seem to be way too small of a stretch of habitat for me uh, to understand why they don't live in the neighboring fields that, uh, that host the same vegetation and uh, soil structure and such. Um, they're a very confusing species. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have had a theory for about twenty years. I, I, I've thought of a couple of different ways that you could actually, that you could actually sort of check to see. It'd be pretty involved, but to see if it's actually true. But because I, I found that with with milk snakes, in especially in like southern Quebec and the eastern townships and stuff like that, their populations you'll find them in some areas they're super super plentiful like you look flip a rock and there's like three under one rock you know they're they're just everywhere in in some areas and then in other areas which seemingly have like tons of food and have don't they don't seem to be polluted or anything they don't seem to have any problems and there'll be like none of them and my my theory was that uh that it basically when they were clearing after Europeans got to the area and they were kind of setting up European style agriculture Mm -hmm. in those areas, they had to clear away all of these rocks. um, that were in the fields that were left over from when the glaciers receded and they left all these. And so they would clear out all these rocks and make these rock walls, which you see all over, uh, Eastern part of North America, but especially in um, in places like New England and up into uh, New Brunswick and Quebec, and I guess parts of I've seen it in in parts of Ontario as well. Mm-hmm. These like these rock walls, and my my theory is that these rock walls uh, provided uh, kind of a ready made because they sink into the ground over time, mm-hmm. and so they they provide a ready made hibernacula for all sorts of snake species that they that's where they go and hibernate and then um when they come out in the springtime 
Uh, it's also a convenient place to bask and to hide and stuff like that. And so they end up staying pretty close to these rock walls. They don't go too far away from them. Mm-hmm. And so there's other areas, you know, maybe that, that just happen to be, you know, a, a few kilometers away from a rock wall and they'll have, it has tons of food but you'll have like no snakes there right. just because it's like far away from home base or yep. like, you know, safe, you know, little kids playing tag or something. Does that seem well, plausible to you or do you, do they forage much farther afield than I'm taking account? No, well, I mean, uh, you're talking about home range now, right up my uh, alley of interest for spatial ecology, but um, each snake has a different home range. Um, and so I don't know the home range of a milk snake off by hand. But I wouldn't imagine it's incredibly far. Yeah, that's what I would um, think. I, I would think it would be like actually pretty small. Like it would be nothing like a garter snake or and absolutely nothing like a racer. No, and, and that's why they, yeah, the racers have a huge home range. But that's why the milk snakes and such, I think, are do so well locally if they have the right conditions. Um, because they don't have the risk of road mortality. They don't have... Like the farther you go, the more time you spend traveling, which opens you up to uh, predators and uh, I guess, like I said, the road mortality and such. But as long as the food source is is strong enough and high vernacular are available, um, you'll often find snakes uh, are all kind of congregated around that area together. Um, And that's why you'd find three snakes under one rock. It's, it's not because, not necessarily because they're trying to be friends, <laughs> but, <laughs> but because they uh, they uh, actually have the right conditions there. That's just the most suitable for them, and um, food is plentiful, and they have that shelter. So, yeah, I, I just think that's that's very it's very interesting in terms of because we we talk you know a lot about how you know there were the idea of like survival evolution by natural selection mm-hmm. that that it's always kind of uh, predation and that it's survival of the fittest and these kinds of things and then you know obviously evolutionary biologists have been saying well we have to focus more on on symbiosis and various other kinds of things but this if you add in like I mean how interesting is it that you could have this species that is in a symbiosis with like rock walls <laughs> like that and that that is actually like a major that is a major sort of uh factor in whether they'll be prevalent in area or not not all the usual darwinian things people would look at like oh are there enough of the mice that they like or the things well, like it's no they they want the wall <laughs> this is this is why i love science like mm. hands down is my favorite topic subject ever um, and it's because, like, there's the theory aspect, such as um, evolution by natural selection, survival of the fittest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then there's also the basis of all science, which is observational data. <laughs> because everything you can ever think of has come from a thought that comes from an observation. And mm. that exactly is what you're talking about there is sometimes the observation uh like not the same theoretical model doesn't necessarily fit every you can't categorize every single 
scenario into that model. And so I think what you're observing is perhaps anecdotal, and that's just that population. Perhaps it's a common feature across uh, the entire eastern U.S. where milk snakes exist. But that that would have to be a study done to look at that. But, I mean, clearly what you're seeing there is some sort of, like you said, symbiosis, symbiotic relationship between that structure type and these snake species occurrence. And so, you know, in that area, as per your current observations, that if you see another rock wall, you're likely to find those snakes there. And sometimes that's what science just boils down to is (laughs) it's uh, that kind of observation. And then you can put it into a, into a thought or hypothesis and then you have to test it. Yeah. But well, my, my theory would never, was never that this would be true for, milk snakes period it, it right. would be true for milk snakes at the northern extent of their range mm-hmm. and so you have like a, a snake that's at this is the limit of its range that's like it doesn't go any higher than that like mm-hmm. they they go up to basically to montreal and maybe like a little bit there's some of them on the the north shore a little bit here and there but mainly this this is the upper limit of their their range and so mm-hmm. my theory was is that when you're this far north um, for most snakes, but especially for something like milk, you're spending like practically eight months of your life <laughs> asleep. You yeah. know, it's kind of amazing. It's like, you know, mission to Mars. You're like, you got to be asleep most of the time. Like yeah. they, they spent, which I mean, just that all by itself. Like to me, the idea that there's this animal that shares our, our you know, our area with us, that is asleep for eight months out of the mm-hmm. year. I mean, that's just practically like, so it was that at the northernmost part of its range, um, the most important thing would be to have uh, hibernacular close by and mm-hmm. to have like, because that, that actually, if you get too far away from that, you're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you, if you can't get back to that in time, like you're done. So yeah. you're not a wood frog. You can't freeze solid. You're, no, you're, you're gonna like you're done. So so maybe that just at the ex, um, and a lot of the things that you're studying in southern Ontario are also things that are at the northernmost part of their range, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. The, uh, yeah. Quite a few things actually. There's a few species that are um, endemic or only occur on Pewley Island. Um, and though I don't study most of them, I often come across a lot of them. Um, but that's Lake Erie water snakes. That's the most northern population, I believe, of those. Um, now that's a subspecies of the northern water snake, but it's it's unique. Um, and then also the smallmouth salamander uh, and the blue racers. In latitude, they extend more north on uh, Michigan and. Um, in Wisconsin, but they, it's the most Northeast population of blue racer for sure. Uh, and it's also just a very unique area because I work on an Island. You don't have a lot of space to go. And, um, the Island isn't very big. It's about five by 10 kilometers. Um, yeah, I was actually just going to ask you how big is it? Yeah, so it's not huge. It's five it's by 10 kilometers. So that's about, I think I'm trying to think of, yeah, that's not that big. No, it's it's not that big. It's 
it's pretty quick. You can drive around the island going about 50 kilometers an hour in under an hour for sure. Um, it's, it's not, it's not a big island and there's not that much habitat left, um, uh, because it was all, it was, it was all drained, uh, used to be a wetland. It was all drained to become farmland. Um, so a lot of it's still farmland, but you have about 20% of the island almost is, uh, conservation lands. Um, and a lot of that's forest, which snakes don't love, but some of it is, uh, grassland and alvar and savannah. So, uh, what is alvar? So alvar is, uh, when the bedrock is extremely close or uh, at the surface. So you have less than 10 centimeters of soil. And um, usually it involves like alvar specific species. Um, but there's not a lot of trees and only grass kind of grows for the most part. Okay, um, that's where you see like all like the cool mosses and it almost looks like desert, but it's... Yeah, it's, it's really dry. It can be flooded in the spring, uh, but then becomes really dry in the summertime. And it gets really hot. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's it's just where you kind of walk out and you can see the bedrock kind of... Well, sometimes it depends on where you are and what alvar you're, you're on. But sometimes there's exposed bedrock for as far as you can see. Um, but a lot of times where I work, it's there's little bits of bedrock sticking through. And then it's mostly... Um, there's a mixture of vegetation, like big blue stem and nodding onion, coneflower, stuff like that. But it's it's mostly ground vegetation with a few trees thrown in. Yeah, I've actually I've seen I I think I've seen what you're talking about in the Muskoka Lakes region. Yeah, there's when you're hiking around there, you you come on these places and it's just it looks it's really cool. It almost looks like. Um, like California or Arizona, but it's in Ontario. It's weird. It's, yeah. like, it's all mosses and small plants and almost like tundra type stuff, but it's, you're nowhere near the Arctic circle, but it's, yeah. So that's what that is. So it's, yeah. So yeah. It and looks, filled, filled with like five line skinks and all sorts of amazing mm-hmm. things. It's, they love it. <laughs> so that, that's actually surprising. I know by my description, it sounds like it's an alvar, but that's actually just called the rock baron. Um, so Alvar, it has to be limestone. Okay. So, yeah, sorry. So the bedrock is limestone. And um, that, once you go up to the Muskoka region, that's uh, Canadian Shield. It's yeah. it's a yeah. uh, different rock. I, forget, what's a, I can't remember what type of rock it is for some reason right now. I think it um, looked like there was a lot of just like granite. It was... I think... There you go. Thank you. It, it is like... Granite. It is... That is the Muskoka Lake region is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen Absolutely. in the world anywhere. It is stunning. It look, but I just love the way you'd be walking along and it looks like some sky God just took an ice cream scooper yeah. and just scooped like perfectly circular chunks out of the granite. Yeah. And so you'll have like this like unbelievably clear blue lake in the middle of nowhere like oh, you're just yeah. like it's hiking along and like you just come along you almost fall into it and it's like this lake is there and, it's and then gorgeous, you walk around yeah. it and there's another lake and there's like these huge water snakes swimming in it it's just absolutely amazing oh yeah it's, it's one of my favorite places and it's because it's such a like southern ontario um with the limestone bedrock and stuff that's it's all flat 
But as soon as you get up there, it's kind of more up and down. It's hilly. It's it's not mountainous, but it there it's got some structure to it. You kind of climb up to the top of a rock barren, and then you look down and you see, like you said, kind of like that perfect ice cream scoop was taken out. Yeah. And it goes down to this lowland and becomes like either a wetland or a lake, or there's just so much diversity and habitat uh, up there, and which allows for uh, awesome diversity and wildlife as well. Oh, it's it's nuts! I heard something the other day. I, you'd probably be able to tell me if it's true or not. Is it true that the highest concentration of rattlesnakes in all of North America is in Ontario? <sighs> I don't know if that's necessarily true, and it uh, it depends because the concentration of rattlesnake. If you're talking about density, um, it differs throughout all of Ontario. Of course, if you were to look at uh, one, population. oh, they didn't mean like like Ontario, like the whole province, which is like you know right. tundras, a bunch of it is like you know yeah. like crazy north. But in terms of that, uh, in the places where uh, Mississauga rattlesnakes are found in um, in Ontario. They are the high. It's the highest concentration of like way more than than in Texas or Arizona or any of these places. If you're talking species specific, I think you could be. I think places. This is just. I don't know, but this would be my own guess. I think places like Arizona, where you have, I think it's like 13 species of rattlesnakes or something they must have a higher density or concentration of rattlesnakes in general in certain areas. But I think for one species, I could certainly see that being the case. There's one day when I went up, I I can't tell you exactly what island it is. I'm not allowed to, but um, I went uh, in Ontario to this, to this one place and we got, I think it was in over two days. There was like, 18 or 22 rattlesnakes or something like that so oh i've seen i in the muskoka lakes region i've seen there's this one area near my my buddy steve's um country place up there and i saw in the space of i don't know an hour hour and a half yeah i saw about like 20 wow yeah that's a good and this was and this was like completely like they were uh, the, the it's the eastern Mississauga rattlesnake. Is that do they say it right? Uh, yeah, it's Massasauga. Yeah, eastern Massasauga. Massasauga I always yeah. think of Mississauga yeah, city and Massasauga. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, it was they were like by far the most uh, common snake there. Like it, like we saw lots of snakes. We saw eastern fox snakes. We saw mm-hmm. smooth green snakes, uh, northern water snakes, uh, garter snakes, a bunch of different ring neck snakes. But but by far the most common one was the rattlesnakes, which is yeah. just crazy. There's some places yeah. like that. There's they're pretty unique, um, and not all, not all places are that abundant. But if you go right time of year, right right weather, and things like that as well, you can you can do that. And I think that's um that's a big factor there is when you're searching and uh because if you go in may for example it's probably the best time mid to later may um they're all out of hibernation all doing their early spring basking mm-hmm. you can you can go to certain places like you said and just start like pointing them out on 
the trail outside like their blades of grass but um there's not a lot of places where you can do that um muskoka's there's some places where they're extremely rare um and that's the more eastern uh muskoka the farther away you go from lake huron the less abundant they are Mm. um so when you're closer to the lakes you can often see those higher concentrations um but then when you go kind of out of the way and go more east you do kind of stumble across them once in a while um but they're they become not so much the prevalent snake species yeah well this was also kind of like a dream dream situation it was uh like across the lake from my very small lake across the lake from uh my buddy's cottage there was uh, like a a farm that was abandoned oh so you have like all these buildings yeah exactly like you have like a complete with like a barn that had collapsed and so there's just like wood everywhere and there's like uh like dead cars on the property and there was like and I remember, like at one point, like near the, and the house is kind of like creaking over on one side, like it's about to collapse. And there was a, like a, just a door, like lying down in front of the, the barn, just like that, like all weathered and stuff like that. Yeah. And I remember I lifted that up and under the door. It was like the dream flip. There was like an Eastern Fox snake, uh, a, Eastern Massasauga rattlesnake Whoa. and then a, a ringneck snake under the same thing. That's the coolest. You know? yeah, that's yeah, very they're just cool. like kind of sitting there. But uh, yeah, I remember if, if memory serves that when there was that crazy heat wave, which seems like every year these years, yeah. um, I think it was like a year ago, two years ago and it got so hot and you had like, you posted this video which I, I shared yes. it to like tons of people and nobody even believed it was real. I was like, no, it's real. And you took some water out of your canteen and you were feeding, you were like sharing your water with a rattlesnake. Yeah. 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 That was a pretty unique scenario. And I don't even know what kind of compelled me to do it. Um, I found this <laughs> rattlesnake is, it's so hot. And I think it was, it must've been close to, feels like 45 or something you know it was absurd how how hot it was outside and dry and it wasn't anywhere near water and for some reason in my head i was like that snake's dehydrated it looks dehydrated and they kind of look of uh it looked like a bit slow and like its skin was a bit loose and so i it was a male and it wasn't just a female that had given birth or anything that can sometimes look like that so I uh, I filled up the the cap of my my bottle my canteen with water and I just pushed it uh, in front of the snake and it just started I guess it did a couple of tongue flicks it noticed the water was there and it put its head straight in and just started lapping it up yeah I'm <laughs> in I'm gonna post it when we when we put this episode out good, yeah I'm gonna post it because it's just it's so adorable it's so amazing <laughs> yeah like, was, like you like sharing water with a rattlesnake it was good like, for like five minutes that thing was thirsty so I'm glad I did so you but, kept refilling it and yeah yeah I, yeah. I think of well because they don't drink a lot but uh I filled it twice but I knocked it over the first time uh when I tried to take a video 
by accident. So, yeah, <laughs> it had a bunch, and then I knocked it over, and it gave uh, me a quick <clears throat> little rattle, and it was like, hey, <laughs> back back off. That's yeah. that my water. <laughs> yeah, so I felt the, the service in this place sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So have yeah. you ever been bitten by a rattlesnake? No, I have not. Thank goodness. Uh, I mean, the bass slug doesn't have a lot of venom, um, or I shouldn't say in quantity. It's it's mild. It's mild venom. So if you get bit, you're not at a huge risk of dying or losing a limb. But I think there's like two deaths in history in Ontario, for, at least over the last fifty years or something, um, and they're immunocompromised or children, people who can't, uh, who are more susceptible to the venom, but um i did know one one of my friends who did get bit by one uh in the u.s and he said he went to photograph when he put his camera bag down um beside him and then he went to reach for another lens or something like that and he didn't realize there was a rattlesnake right beside where he put his bag down (laughs) and so it bit his finger and you know those you know those like latex gloves that you have in science class when you're a kid wave like you would blow them up like a balloon yeah and yeah so his hand looked like that <laughs> he showed me a photo <laughs> and so he actually had to go to the hospital and i think he had like 10 or 12 vials of antivenom um which is a lot um but he reacted pretty strongly to massasauga venom some people have it have it better and some people have it worse but yeah so it's not something i definitely it's definitely something i want to avoid <laughs> and i never want to be bit by one but um it, it seems of, to me like it's pretty easy to not get bit by them. I mean, well, you just, 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 yeah, just like don't, don't, uh, don't handle them. Or if you're going to yeah. handle them, be really careful. I mean, I have handled them, but I wouldn't recommend doing it. I was no, young when I did that. I wouldn't do that now. <laughs> no, so they're like bites, freak accident bites happen. Um, not very often. There's only a few each year, but they do happen. But as long as you respect the snake for the most part, like you can basically step on it without, like it won't even rattle, it won't bite you, you know? So it's the people who try and handle it and don't know how. And technically in Ontario, it's actually illegal to handle it um, anyways, unless you have the permits to do so. So you shouldn't be doing that. Um, But people who maybe they're trying to get it off the road or they're trying to get it off the path and be helpful and, uh, make sure the snake makes it somewhere safely and uh, gets themselves and others out of the p- way of potential danger. Um, you, like you just can't do it if you don't know what you're doing and don't have a, a hook or or the proper equipment to do so. There's yeah. just a respect for the animal and giving it distance and then um, the proper knowledge and training. Yeah. Well, that's I, I actually <laughs> this um, this friend of ours she worked at a summer camp in Ontario and she said that one of the scariest things that happened was uh, one of her campers in her, (laughs) she was like a counselor when she was 16, something like that at a camp. And one of her campers got bit by a rattlesnake. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They had the the kids like leg was swelling up and was all upset and stuff like that. And she, she said it turned out it ended up being fine. Uh, they, I think they didn't even give antivenom. I think they just gave kid like Benadryl or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And it, and it wasn't a big deal. Like it was not, uh, cause oh, she was yeah. imagining like 
rattlesnake from like you know big rattlesnake in the desert or a timber rattlesnake something like really and, you know. yeah those those are you don't want to get bit by but yeah the massive saga i remember a new story from a few years ago maybe it's more years ago than i thought than i think now <laughs> but every time seems to fly by but um there was this woman who was gardening uh in windsor um the windsor area anyways and she got bit and she didn't even realize what it was but she, she had like this mild swelling and this discomfort and pain and so she kind of just blew it off for like most of the day or eight hours maybe it was even the whole day i don't remember is this but, woman like gardening drunk or something <laughs> no i guess it was just how could you in, get bit by and not know like well she knew she got bit but she didn't know what it was okay so she knew she knew she got bit and didn't know what it was and she had discomfort and some swelling but didn't think much of it and then when it didn't go away she kind of was just like oh i better get this like checked or whatever and then they realized what it was and it, i don't remember if that snake maybe someone went back and killed it which is unfortunate um but yeah so you can often go some time without uh sometimes you don't need that venom right away uh, the anti-venom right away because it's such a mild venom but you definitely want to get yourself to a hospital uh as soon as you can just in case um but yeah it's is so that- funny that like in canada this the snake situation is so tame like i remember when i was yeah. I, I was in singapore and and at a at a dinner party and these like kind of these rich like british women were you know complaining about the help and stuff like that and it, mo- mostly their conversation was uninteresting to me but i overheard this one part where this woman was saying how like this i think it was a like a python or like some like okay. like a reticulated python came out of her garden and grabbed her little dog and <laughs> ate it <laughs> like in front of her like she's screaming the, the dog like just grab the dog oh, oh no. and she's like yelling and trying this you know snake is not interested in her at all dinner. yeah yeah just like ate the dog and then went back and like into the forest oh, like no. that way <laughs> i mean you know and you hear these stories from south asia and from like our snake stories in Canada are pretty tame. Yeah, <laughs> by comparison, in terms of that kind of thing, yeah, yeah, like venomous are. snakes, like it's a very, very different thing. Was what are the like if you had to sort of say, uh, what are like the five most obviously that you know sharing water with a rattlesnake is pretty amazing. What would be yeah. like your five most memorable nature moments in um oh. in, the la- in the last couple of years? That's so tough. Um, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, so maybe let's say top ten. Okay. Well, yeah, definitely sharing water with a rattlesnake was was up there. Um, I think one of my favorite things is uh, to do is actually spending time with friends and kind of like helping them to see things they've never seen before and seeing the excitement on someone's face, like you said earlier, like a lifer, like the first time i've ever seen it before in the wild not just a photo or a captive animal um and so my best friend taylor um one time i was living up north uh and again i i can't talk about locations for almost everything i talk about but um so i was up north and living up there for a while and i had came across a population of wood turtles 
Um, oh wow! Which is an endangered. <laughs> Those are species. amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're beautiful. They're endangered species in Ontario. Um, they're they kind of get poached. They get poached a lot, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe tell our listeners like just a a side note on like why you can't tell locations. This is kind right, of yeah, part of the dark point. side that you were alluding to before. Yeah. So a lot of um, a lot of reptiles and amphibians. Uh, some specific ones more than others uh, are worth a pretty penny um, on the black market and um, in trades for the, for the pet trade. And so one thing we have to do as herpetologists and uh, as anyone who goes out to find these animals or sees them, you shouldn't um, list the location. You can't talk about it because you don't know what, whether it's on Facebook or whoever's listening or whatever the scenario is, you don't know if someone's going to hear that and say, Oh, this person found this wood turtle, uh, in this specific river or Creek or whatever it happens to be. And I'm going to go there, catch this turtle and then sell it for, uh, whatever the price is, you know? So that's a pretty, um, sadly a popular, Thing. and it used to be more so but definitely still is an issue and uh so for especially yeah, I've, I've heard of uh, like this one this one pond in southern quebec where people f- the pet trade people found out that there were spotted turtles there and yeah. they just they came up in like a van from the states like i think from like from Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly, they came up like in a van and they just like emptied the entire pond of like spotted turtles. Yeah. And they and took, took them back and sold them all like on the pet trade. Yeah. And they, so they can decimate uh, populations. And sometimes you have populations, you take a couple adults out and that population is going to be gone in future years because of that. And then sometimes, like you said, they just wipe them out completely because they take all of the all of the turtles or snakes or whatever it is. And so it's just a good rule of thumb. Um, but then I also have some legal, is- like I have signed disclosure agreements to say I can't talk about locations and stuff like that. But it's just a good rule of thumb, uh, no matter who you are, or where you're going, just to not not be specific in location. But uh, it's only about, it's only for certain species, right? Only for certain species. For those that are considered species at risk, which means, um, they're at risk of extirpation or extinction already, um, and there's not many of them left. So wood turtles endangered species, uh, like the hog nose snake, is threatened. Um, and then those are the ones kind of the highest concern is the threatened and endangered species. But yeah, so I just can't I can't disclose location for that reason. Um, yeah. So you were up north, and there's a wood turtle. Yeah. So I was up north, and uh, I was helping out doing some nesting. Uh, surveys for wood turtles and um, I invited my friend Taylor to come up because he had never seen them uh, seen them in the wild before and uh, I thought it was a perfect opportunity he could help on the surveys um, and whatnot so it's a bit of a drive so he spent all day driving came up to this site um, and I said you're in luck like I'm watching one nest right now we're sitting in the car so he pulls up and in the car, and we have a, you have to use a red light because you don't want to spook the turtles, and uh, a white light will do that. So we kind of shone the light on the turtle, and he could see it from a distance, but it's like he didn't want to count that as lifer because he just kind of 
he could see it from far away, but it wasn't like up close and personal. Um, so then we started walking around, uh, checking other areas for them. And there's this little pond. And in this pond, there was this loud clunking noise. It was like clunk, clunk, clunk. And we look over and it was uh, a male and female wood turtle mating. Um, Whoa. Yeah. In this pond. So his first uh, up close and personal wood turtles were actually a mating pair. Um, and so that was something you'll probably never see again for the rest of his life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty exciting. (laughs) So that was, that was really cool. Um, and then of course we let them be and whatnot, but so that was neat. Um, (laughs) Another one, I guess, it, it kind of has to be, uh, I'm thinking also of that timeline up there. When I was up north, I discovered a new population of two-line salamanders, northern two-line salamanders. Um, it, they suspected that they would they go up along the Ottawa River pretty far. Um, but I was kind of uh, up in that general direction, and uh, I found one that was quite a significant distance away from any other previously recorded ones. And it was on a uh, conservation reserve already, which was, uh, which was pretty unique, but that was really exciting to flip. I was looking for, I think I was maybe even in this cold water stream looking at brook trout or something like that. And I was just, of course, being someone, a herpetologist, I was flipping the rocks and logs and stuff. And I flipped the one and I was like, that doesn't look like a redback salamander. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so i looked at it closely and it was it was a two-line and i so i got extremely excited i started calling everybody and letting them know and now it's reported uh, on the atlas ontario reptile amphibian atlas maps that i guess they don't exist anymore they used to i don't know where they are but uh it extended the range which was really unique um another thing i guess if uh, like my favorite um, species is the blue racer which is one reason because i study them <laughs> so i'm a little <laughs> bit biased but i think they're extremely cool oh they um, are i mean they're just you know for for listeners as i said you really you have to yeah. or if you go to if you go and follow ryan wolf on instagram he's got all sorts of pictures of himself with, <laughs> with blue racers that he's caught recently and they're, they're yeah amazing they're they're well they're beautiful and just the color, so blue is a, a rare um, color in, in the wild anyways. Um, and they're not often bright blue, but sometimes you get these beautifully um, bright blue sides on these snakes. And they have a black mask around their eyes and a brown nose. They're just really cool looking. And they can be small snakes that are like a couple feet long to the monsters that are like six feet. Um, so they're really really cool in that in that sense um but yeah so one of my favorites uh kind of herping finds and stories is uh, i guess two of them one was uh my first ever blue racers on my research project i got uh, a male and female courting they were chasing each other um and seeing that behavior is not something you get to see very often in the wild at all, like even in the U.S. where they're common. But it's definitely not something you get to see a lot in uh, Ontario. And so that so do was... They, do they chase each other or do they slither in parallel? Like No, they chase each other. They, uh, <laughs> they were really <laughs> darting back and forth. Um, and it's funny because like they'll stop. So 
it actually was really quite interesting the way we caught them too but so the male would chase the female would zoom ahead the male would chase the female and she would stop and wait for them to catch up and kind of do the little thing and then she would dart off again and then they would chase each other back and forth playing hard and, to get yeah yeah and yeah. so we actually caught um the male first and so we grabbed the male and uh then the female was still going through the grass really quickly and then all of a sudden just, just stopped and she was kind of like poked her head up that periscoping uh, kind of thing like stuck her head up and was looking around because she was like where did my male go is he not <laughs> is he not interested in me anymore like what what did i do wrong and uh he's was, just not that into you yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it was uh, just that we had snatched him up a second ago so we were able to scoop her up pretty easily as well because she was confused as the scenario but that was really unique um and then another quick one is uh the biggest racer i saw uh, so far was five foot eight and a half and that was pretty exciting um wow yeah it was, stood on, it was almost as long as uh, my best friend taylor who, caught, uh, who was with me when we caught him um and i also got to see uh, i got to see everything from babies to adults but um one cool one was a gravid female who was just about to lay her eggs um she had a bunch of i think it was like 10 to 13 or something like that eggs in her um and she was just sitting underneath one of uh like this cover object and i lifted it and this huge like almost five foot snake full of eggs was sitting underneath there and uh, it was really cool to see that um again it's just because it's it's not a common species. Um, How can you tell when they've got eggs as opposed to when they're just like, they just ate have something meal. big? Yeah. Yeah. So this, so this snake was, first of all, it's really big. So the only thing that would kind of create um, the lumps that go down the snake's body when they have uh, eggs or uh, food, food item in there is another snake. And I've seen it in milk snakes um, where it has clearly eaten maybe a guard or something like that. And you have these lumps, kind of looks like eggs, but it's it's a food item that's kind of squished in there. Yeah. Um, and because there were so many lumps and it was such a big snake, it, first of all, couldn't have eaten. Uh, like it might have been a garter snake that's uh, a huge, like a really big garter snake that had eaten something like that. But you can actually... Um, palpate a snake which what that means is you basically run your thumb or your finger along its belly and mm -hmm. you can kind of feel the lumps and it's hard to describe over um, over the like with a voice here but the you can feel the each individual egg okay um, as you palpate so yeah, I was able to and do it's that not, it's not something you would ever be with food <laughs> no no yeah, it's totally so different it feels different yeah but so that that was really cool, um, and then I had another blue racer that shed in my hands, shed her skin. Whoa! She was, yeah, she was. I picked it up and I was like, "This is the ugliest racer I've ever seen." <laughs> and then, and, and I was like, "Oh wait, it's just a shed." And so she started slithering through my hands, and I just held her, and it just all came off right in my hands, and she was beautifully blue i named her lucy and, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <That's> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and so that was really cool um but other 
other thing besides my racers i've i've had an awesome year this year um seeing some incredible uh species despite having a whole pandemic kind of stopping your going out as much and whatnot but uh i've seen some really cool things and one of those i guess i'll do it chronologically the first one i saw this spring was a piebald spotted salamander and what that means is it's partially leucistic so it's partially white completely white and Whoa. lacks the pigments uh, normally spotted salamanders are black with yellow spots and this salamander was black and white like spotted like it had some mostly black but had some white coloration splashed in like kind of like a cow it looked kind of like a cow and it didn't have any yellow spots and i had a friend take me out to the population um which has i think around they have an estimate of about 13 individuals that are have this mutation um and so i was able to go out and we were lucky enough to see one um and so that was really cool so one of those once in a lifetime yeah, kind of thing if you don't amazing. know about it yeah like you wouldn't come across that by yourself very often like or ever it's it is incredible um and so i have that post on my I, I didn't even know that i didn't even know that that existed yeah i must, yeah. Have, I must have missed that uh that post of yours because I, I didn't even know i mean i've heard of weird color variants but but no, yeah. nothing that that's just i mean i've heard of these like redback salamanders in these places in nova scotia that are like bright blue yeah they, bright red there's some which, weird yeah mutations which yeah. strange but i've never even heard of piebald that's, yeah yeah well they have it like it's pretty it's across lots of different taxa. it's in deer um i have actually my uh my girlfriend's house is um, around the corner from me, but on her kind of neighborhood, there's this piebald uh, American robin that I see every so often. And it's just, it's mostly looks like a normal robin, but there's patches of it that are just white, um, which is really cool. But so it's pretty, it's. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I just, I went on your Instagram. Yeah. Look, that is completely insane looking yeah it's yeah. like almost pink yeah it's, like it's, it's, it's really uh, what an interesting co- yeah, i mean like a, i mean the first person who saw one of those must have thought they had just discovered a new salamander or something oh yeah for sure it was so unique looking and there's this there's only a handful of them there um which is unique in itself that there's enough there that people know about it and you can go and like i could go back next spring and hope like probably see one again which is really cool because normally it's like a once in a lifetime find if ever you would see something like that. Um, But yeah, so if anyone wants to go look at that, you can look on my Instagram and that pictures. Um, But another cool, I guess this is a year of mutations for me because the other cool thing I saw was an exanthic mink frog. Um, And exanthic means it's basically uh, what's normally green. So frog that's normally green is made up of blue pigment and yellow pigment mixed together to make it look green. And exantic means it doesn't have that yellow pigment, so it only is blue. So (laughs) instead of being a green mink frog, it was mostly blue. And it was kind of a crazy story because my friend and I, one of my really close friends, Sterling, uh, we decided to go to this uh, 
of this place, um, only an hour and a half away from our, our home city here. Um, and on a whim, it was kind of a bad weather day and we just wanted to get out. We wanted to do something. And so we drove like an hour and a half away and the whole park was closed. And so we kind of started driving around it to kind of look and see if there's any like public access fields or anything like that. We parked at the side of this road. He's like, oh, I've seen mink frogs right here before. And it's unique because it's the southernmost population of mink frogs you could ever, uh, you ever have in Ontario. Um, and so we pulled over the side of the road and got out. And he's like, oh, there's one. He's like, dude, it's blue. And I looked at it, I, I glanced at it, and I was like, that's not blue. I'm like, that's just the light, like, kind of reflecting against your eyes funny. He's like, nah, man, it's blue. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like, okay, I gotta come take a look. And sure enough, it was a bright blue mink frog. And if that wasn't cool enough, I, I tried to do some research, and I think there was one other person I, I that saw, like, potentially had some exanthism in a mink frog. But for all I could find, it was just not reported in literature. And um, I can't see any photos anywhere online, nothing. So I posted in a bunch of Facebook groups asking about it and I, uh, and whatnot. And the Ken Dodd, the author of Frogs of United States and Canada, um, has been talking to me recently because of it. And they they want me to uh, publish a natural history note on it. And I'm going to, I think, um, along with some other ones like the Piebald Spotted and the uh, next one I'm going to talk about. But um, And he wants to use the picture in his new volume of the Frogs of United States and Canada book um, because it's it hasn't been reported before. So it's kind of a, a unique find. Um, so it was really cool to kind of go on a whim and just see something absolutely bizarre and it was basically the only thing we saw all day because uh, it's kind of rainy and wet weather um, yeah do you think it's just sort of i'm just sort of thinking out loud here but do you think it's possible that um at the the limit of of a range mm-hmm. of a species or when you have like kind of relatively isolated populations that are just outside of the usual range or or island populations that it's precisely in those zones that you might be more likely to find these uh, genetic kind of, I don't know, oddballs, outliers? Well, it's hard to say. Um, My gut feeling would be to say no, um, simply because a lot of these mutations are spot mutations, uh, um, which means they're not necessarily genetic and like passed on. Um, there are some, however, uh, that are location specific and the more, like if they're in an isolated population, they can be expressed more commonly because those, those genes get passed on. But I don't, to my knowledge, and I could be completely wrong, uh, but to my knowledge, I don't know, I don't think those are genetically inherited traits, the xanthism, um, I think piebald is, um, but I don't know if xanthism is, so I don't know if that's like kind of a, a mutation that kind of would pop up anywhere and maybe would get drowned out um, in kind of dense populations in the middle, but where they kind of reach their extents, maybe because um, there's not as many individuals and 
there's more opportunity like for that individual to reproduce and that gene gets expressed more that could very well be yeah it's, it's just because it gets McFrog, that's like that's a really kind of very northern north yeah. america frog i mean the, the southern limit is pretty far north <laughs> yeah it's, it's like, a it's a pretty northern frog species in general and it, there's a, a few populations in states uh south of us but in ontario um they're almost completely out of southern ontario there's only that one population that is really the southern southern ontario population um yeah i'm not sure there's a good there's a good number of them there so uh i've never seen it before or since and it's only that's the one that's amazing but, a yeah. blue one. Yeah. So, so what? What's uh, what's the next uh, amazing, awesome story? Yeah. So the the next one was uh, later on in the summer. Uh, I saw one of the craziest looking snakes I've ever seen, and uh, it was just an eastern garter snake, but it was exam- It was uh, melanistic, which means it's completely black, um, almost. So. It has like a bit of a white chin normally. The uh, melanistics normally have like a bit of a white chin and white kind of lips and maybe a few scales that are white. And that's actually a pretty common um, occurrence along Lake Erie. Uh, there's a few populations in like Ohio and Peely Island and Long Point and stuff like that where these snakes, um, all, like between 30 and 50% of the population is melanistic meaning they're black instead of the normal um, kind of browny tan to dark brown with yellow stripes. They're just completely black and have a bit of the white chin and, and white, just a few white scales up by the head. Yeah, I've still um, never come upon one. I'm 45 years old. <laughs> I still haven't seen one, uh, but I know uh, lots of people, lots of people have. It's, it, they, they look so cool. I saw one today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, was today. <laughs> wow. No, no, I saw I saw melanistic today, but um, this one wasn't just melanistic. This one was also exanthic. So, like I talked about with that mink frog, uh, making it blue, all of the scales that would have been white, so like the chin and kind of some scales along its back a little bit, but mostly up by the head where they would be white scales, those were all bright blue. So this snake... <laughs> was absurd looking it was a black and blue snake and the blue was bluer than the blue racers are like it was incredible um it was just like something we my uh field assistant jordan and i we flipped it and we both kind of our jaws just dropped and was like what are we looking at like what is this crazy snake and yeah we, yeah, uh, I remember you you posted that, and I you can see the blue scales. It just looks like yeah, completely weird. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like something. Wow, else. but yeah, so those are probably my biggest stories from from this year. Um, but I've I've seen lots of things in the wild. I've I've had a cool flip, like you were saying with the fox snake and the massasauga. I had one with a fox snake and a and a racer. Um, which you can only do on Peely Island in Ontario, of course. That's the place racers exist. But um, I've had a lot of cool things. I had this uh, early spring uh, when snakes were coming out of hibernation. I was able to take one of those, not an endoscope, but like a borehole camera. So basically it's like a little camera on the end of a tube you put down like your toilet or your drains or whatever you need to 
check for clogs or something. Um, I took one of those and I stuck it down this hibernacular hole and I was able to take pictures of this fox snake still hibernating down in in this hole. Um, So so I've done some pretty cool things (laughs) and seen some things and (laughs) I could talk about it all day. Yeah, yeah. that's that's amazing. I mean, so in terms of, well, two questions actually that came to mind is first of all, do you have any idea why like melanism, does it serve any purpose that you can tell? Does it, does it provide any kind of advantage? Yeah, absolutely. So what is the, what are the advantages? So that's actually one of the hypotheses for why it became so prevalent in these areas and why it is. Um, and it's because uh, like, so snakes have to thermoregulate. So they bask, to their cold blood so they need to bask and warm up from the sun so they can perform daily activities like mating in the spring like giving birth or eating digesting food um and of course as we all know the darker the item like black attracts sun a lot more than white mm-hmm. but so anything lighter than the black snake so the typical tan brown snakes um they're assumed to be less efficient at collecting those uh, th- those thermal rays and uh, heating up as fast as the melanistic. So perhaps um, it suggested when they first come out of hibernation, the melanistics can come out earlier because they can get more sunlight and warm up quicker. Um, and that's, from my personal observations, I've actually seen uh, melanistic garter snakes up out of hibernation before the normal eastern garter snakes i've also seen them out later in the year like into late uh mid-november um still out basking and stuff like that whereas the eastern regular eastern garter snakes are underground already um and that's those are just my personal observations but it suggested that perhaps they come out earlier and then they can warm up and then they can breed like they can be the ones that are ready to mate earlier so they those males inseminate the females earlier or those females and the melanistic males mate. And so the, the, that gene gets passed on um, more often. Uh, and that's all due to just basically uh, what it allows them to do in terms of getting sun at, a, at an easier and earlier date. Um, than the yeah, that makes, that makes a great deal of sense. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the other question I was thinking is, just going back to something I asked you earlier about is in terms of your, uh, your studies into this, into snake ecology, like what are the questions? Cause obviously there are these big cases that people talk about, like, you know, we, you put the wolves back in Yellowstone and suddenly mm-hmm. it has all these like spill off effects where um, forests regrow and all sorts of species come back and you, you know, it's just, has all these like like positive effects on the ecosystem to put this apex predator back mm-hmm. um, and then we also know at the other end that if you have something really kind of numerous whether it be mosquitoes or krill or and if you remove them uh, a whole ecosystem can collapse um, mm-hmm. but I, I I don't think I've read as much um, that explains you know what? What is the function that that a snake serves in um, in an ecosystem? That seems like a really interesting question to me, and I just I'm wondering if you have any ideas. Like what what does yeah uh, what do they 
what purpose do they serve in different ecosystems? Well, you're kind of setting me up here for success. So I'm going <laughs> to tackle two birds with one stone on this. <laughs> um, but uh, so in terms of the ecosystem stuff, they're not a keystone species, um, which would be the wolf example you gave um, that re- would regenerate like on an entire forest because that a keystone species has like that trickle down effect. Um, so the wolf eats the beavers, which don't cause the dams, which causes less flooding. So things can regrow, etc. Um, and it's not quite like the other end of the spectrum either. It, they're kind of like a middleman. Um, so like I said, with diet, they mostly eat like the small mammals or the frogs um, and that kind of thing. And they keep, so they keep those populations in check. Um, so you'll often find like humans don't like snakes. We inherently, a lot of people don't, they have a fear before they even know what a snake is. Um, and sometimes it's irrational. Sometimes it's justified to a certain level. Um, but I try and tell people just to respect them and appreciate them because they like to hang around a lot of farms and they like to hang around us that have created this breeding ground for mice and rodents, uh, which are super harmful to us. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't want them around. And so they keep that in check. Um, they keep those populations in check and they also provide a food source um, uh, to other animals like foxes and eagles and owls and stuff like that. So they, they, they're kind of like that middle ground where um, they fill that role of being a predator and a prey item. Uh, and it's just a matter of balance. Uh, if you took out all of the snakes from an area, you're going to have an overrun population of rodents and your, maybe your frogs come become crazy abundant as well. And it's just one of those balance and keep things in check kind of thing. Um, but I also want to say, like, with the, with the mouse um, problem and stuff, we've created these areas where there's so many mice and uh, our natural um, solution to that is that snakes will come eat those mice. So snakes <laughs> are actually a good thing. Uh, a lot of farmers don't like them and they, they kind of often kill them on site, which is so unfortunate. I try and tell people snakes are on your team. It's like you leave them alone and they'll actually take care of um, the mice for you and in turn those mice are carriers of disease and pests and ticks and things like that so that snake could let's say it's a blue racer because that's what i study so mm-hmm. if it eats let's even just say uh a couple mice a year let's say it eats like six mice a year those mice each one can carry 10 plus ticks you know and so like that snake eats all of that and that gets rid of that so you eliminated that's one snake that's almost like that's 60 to almost 100 ticks gone out of the wild because that one snake was able to live and eat those eat those mice and so they keep things like that like keep they keep the pests and they keep the ticks and disease in check and so they're really important not only to the ecosystem but to us as humans um, and we do ourselves a uh, disfavor when we uh, when we decide we don't like them or don't want them around, so we try to get rid of them. Yeah, no, I, it, it seems it seems rather rather obvious to me how 
things like milk snakes and constrictors that eat primarily rodents and hang around farms, it seems pretty obvious to me like what function they're playing in the, I guess, Uh the, the ecology of agricultural zones. I'm just, I'm more fascinated by like, if, if you find like a pond or a wetland and you've got, you know, a bunch of snakes that are like water snakes and garter snakes and things like that all around there. I just, I wonder what, um, like what their, what their role in the, the ecosystem is. It's just, um, it just seems really interesting to me to try and figure out like how they, how they fit, you know, because like, mm-hmm. clearly they're, they're really important to, to how it's working. Cause when you see one that's working well, it's full of them. So clearly yeah, they, yeah. they, they must be serving an important function, but I just think in terms of our, our understanding of ecology, it's still really new as a discipline. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's obvious to us, these, these dramatic cases, like a, like a, as you put it, like a keystone species or, or something at the bottom, like with this, you know, the silent spring, you know, talking about how like insecticides killing all the mosquitoes had gotten rid of all the songbirds and things like that. So it's obvious, like at either end of the spectrum, um, you can see these dramatic cases. But it is really interesting to sort of try and figure out what these middle, yeah, middle of the ecosystem, like what what exactly are those because they must be doing something it's like i i just uh, i read this book recently with my my buddy alex and it's called um you've probably read it it's by this guy merlin something uh, entangled life Uh, merlin i can't remember his last name uh it it sounds like something out of game of thrones like his name it's crazy but (laughs) it's like a real name it's a real guy but he studies uh uh fungi and he talks about like all the uh, the various mycorrhizal like networks between roots, yeah. forests, yeah. Very cool. and how like there's uh, they share resources with each other in all sorts of strange ways that we don't fully understand. Like, and so um, I mean, this is based on I think it's Caroline Simald's like work mm-hmm. on uh, how like these fungal networks in forests. Are really important so when they were trying to like uh replant clear-cut areas in bc they um they would generally speaking they would you know plant all these like douglas firs which they want right because mm-hmm. they want them and but then these these scrub birch would grow up around them and so they would go every summer and they would like clear away the scrub birch because they figured well, these are like weeds and they're like, they're sucking resources away from the Douglas firs, which are the ones that we want to, you know, like going and weeding your garden. Yeah. But what yeah. they found is in the areas that they didn't get to, like where the tree planters didn't get to the areas to remove the birches, mm-hmm. the Douglas firs actually did way better in those mm. areas than in the areas where they removed the birches. And uh, Sima demonstrated in this like famous uh, paper, it, it made her reputation in nature. I think it was in like 1998 or something like that. But she, in this paper, she demonstrated that actually there were all these like uh, fungal networks between the root systems of the birches and the Douglas firs. And 
the Birches were sharing um, all sorts of uh, resources with the Douglas firs and then, and back and forth. And they were like, <laughs> and, cool. and uh, but then like the, the next level thing, which is where I see the analogy to snakes is that you have these things like, you know, the um, Indian or they call it ghost pipe. Yeah. Pipe grass. Yeah. Yeah. Like those weird, I just saw some in the forest the other day, like where they have no chlorophyll and it just looks like this yeah. they call it corpse plant. Yeah, but it really does. The corpse plant is um, it. Obviously, it has no chlorophyll, so it, it gets all of its um, all of its food from the root systems of surrounding plants and trees, mm-hmm. which is just wild. And so the the question that this guy asks in um, in Entangled Life is, he says, clearly these these species that are in the middle of ecosystems that are at like the middle of systems they're they must be providing some sort of beneficial service to the other species they they're not just parasites that are like sucking off the system because we can tell that when um when things are healthy you find them and when the forest is not healthy you don't find them i mean like what what do you think is i don't know i i it, we this is like at the limits of what we know at the moment. I just I think uh, yeah. I mean yeah. I totally mean it. Absolutely, that they're kind of that thing where you can talk about um, the food chain stuff like we were like if they're if you drew out that nice map that you would in like grade school and you have your apex at the top and your grass and stuff at the bottom and you, you'd find a snake and somewhere or a reptile, a turtle, etc. In the middle of that. Uh, kind of page and have all these lines connecting to it. And I think that's one of the unique things right there is that you have so many lines connecting to it. It's like so many things don't necessarily depend solely on that species or that individual, but the makeup of the entire um, middle, as we're, as we've been calling it, um, that's what provides like all of the resources um, for everything above it. And it, keeps in check everything below it so i think that from that ecological standpoint um, in terms of like the food chain stuff it keeps it just keeps that balance but um one cool thing i thought of when you were talking there is uh as the queen snakes i was uh surveying for today um and they're great indicators of a clean and healthy um system uh because the queen snake they only prey upon or basically only prey upon crayfish that have freshly molted which means freshly set their skin they're a new like they're all soft and stuff yeah but so crayfish are amazing um like they need clear cold water uh streams is where they do the best in so when that's clean there's no pollution the crayfish uh, population is abundant and that population of crayfish needs to be abundant enough that the queen snakes are also there um, in abundance. So those queen snakes rely on the very basic beginning of that water being in a good health and condition to support everything that the crayfish needs. And then they can um, prey on those crayfish. And then after that, I mean, they get eaten by other things too. Right. But um, I think that's really cool. And, that a lot of times herps get looked over in that in that sense 
um, because they're that middle species and because they don't they aren't one of those apex top predators um, but they get looked over and they could be indicators of a healthy ecosystem and they are um, and that's just one example of it that's that's really apparent and bold but um, if you come in across this great big expanse of grassland you're going to find a snake in there as long as like <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah if it's a healthy ecosystem there will be snakes there will be uh and if it's a healthy wetland there will be turtles and frogs you know so um yeah i think i think they do serve uh, a, a really important purpose of being that that middle ground you can't just have the apex predators and then the bottom they have to kind of have that those different levels um, and they also are uh, good indicators of a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, it's, I, two sort of, I guess, less less cheery questions, but I, I had to ask. <laughs> uh, first of all, I I'm blanking on the name of it, but I heard that very recently there's this new disease that is um, that is killing off all sorts of coronavirus snakes oh what is it called <laughs> yeah I just yeah not not coronavirus <laughs> it's it's this new and it's specifically killing off snakes snake fungal disease is that, is that what it is SFD. It, it's like it's a, affecting a lot of like fox snakes yeah and a lot of- yeah so it's snake fungal disease um and it's interesting i was talking about it today with uh, my friend sterling actually and um it's one of those things that we're like unsure if it's something that we've had all along or um, that it's something that's new because in old reports and like old research, like research from their work uh, a few decades ago, they will say, Oh, this snake has like these weird lesions, probably from hibernation blisters, yada, yada, yada. And they kind of dismiss because they don't, they don't know what snake fungal disease is yet, but they look, like those researchers, I've talked to them personally, look back and say, that snake could have easily had snake fungal disease. I don't know. Like I just, my notes just say this, you know, they had those weird bumps. <laughs> and yeah. So, but it has become something that's been identified and it is a problem. I don't think it actually causes the death of a snake directly. It more so impairs their uh, ability to perform uh, regular uh, behavioral characteristics like they can't forage and like they can't their body basically shuts down a little bit um, and they they can die as a result of it and it's it's becoming something that is at least more prevalent or more noticed in a lot of populations um, fox snakes massasagas uh, haven't seen it in the blue racers yet but i have confirmed it in fox snakes on Pelee island and so it's just, it's one of those things that um, is something we have to keep an eye on, keep a keep a, um, a look out for. And yeah, because there's that other fungus that's killing off amphibians all over the world. Yeah, right? chytrid, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but yeah, so the snake fungal disease, like, it's, it's an issue, but it's very hard to treat, and it takes a long time, and it's expensive. And so where we... Like my work, I swab each snake that looks like it could have it to test and see if it does. But then beyond that, it just kind of gives an identification of, yes, it's on this island. Yes, it's like prevalent or not. Or like, um, 
and we're just in the early stages of kind of mapping out, trying to understand the disease, the snake fungal disease before we can really uh, go into a, can we like help stage. Okay. But, and the other, the other not so cheery, well, maybe, I don't know, um, <laughs> is, is in terms of one thing that I'm sure you've, since you were a little kid, I know, I remember with my little kind of reptiles and amphibians of North America book when I was a kid, I always just, it was so sad. <laughs> it was so sad. Or like the, the range maps always seemed to like end before where I lived, <laughs> you know? like they were of almost everything. And uh, I mean, what do you think is going to happen with climate change? Do you think it's going to actually, um, because, I mean, we talk about all the damage it's going to do, and obviously it mm-hmm. is going to do lots of damage. But do you think um, we might actually see the ranges of all sorts of reptiles extending north? Mm. That's a tough question. Um, and because... Um, so I was on a talk a couple years ago, maybe it was just last year, um, but it was these... Um, climate change herpetologist um, researchers and they were looking at exactly what you're talking about and um, they would do models being like oh this species in the next 50 years its habitat like it's at least the thermal properties of the habitat could range this much further north and so the predicted ability for them to survive um because they have the right conditions more north um is going to become a thing so that technically if you looked at just that side of you could say yeah that species could probably live up like in maybe it's a southern terror species like the blue racer or the um i can't think of one maybe the rat snake or something and um you say oh, like in 50 years, it'll be able to live farther north because it'll be warm enough for them there. They can hibernate over the winter, like the season's longer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But you have to understand that there's uh, a lot more to it. Like, yes, that's one of the key factors for um, uh, these cold-blooded species, but um, they also need the right habitat characteristics and they also need the pathways to travel and migrate. So if you look at Southern Ontario, the best worst example (laughs) of Mm -hmm. that, and it's in, there's no wildlife corridors. There's no continuous stretch of uh, forest or habitat, wildlife habitat. It's all farmland. So even if that, if the ranges for species that are in the United States um, were to go North into Ontario and they could live there, they can't get there. So there's lots of barriers to it. Um, but theoretically there's a potential for migrations and range map extensions. Yes. I would say there, there could be, but it's hard to kind of say whether or not they'll be able to do so. Okay. Cause I, I haven't heard just anecdotally. I've heard, um, that, things like the American bullfrog is mm-hmm. moving farther and farther north, like in Cree communities and, and Inuit communities, they're seeing bullfrogs and they're seeing um, like the 
just the the American toad, like the base. They're seeing the bullfrog and the American toad yeah. farther and farther north. And, and then this one, I had the student in my class uh, last year, and she she's Inuit, and she she said that they now have um, the bullfrog is in Greenland. Oh wow! And in Baffin Island, like. Yeah. really far north well, like it used to be they would they would never see uh bullfrogs and now there's bullfrogs yes yeah. so that there. makes sense i mean the like those are also habitat generalists and they can kind of survive in a lot of places and some places are invasive as well they're not supposed to be there um but like, like toads and stuff that it moves north and a you'll see definitely be able to see a gradual extension in north when they have the habitat and the means to do so as the uh, temperatures rise enough that they can but uh, you also have to look at the method so like if all of a sudden they're popping up somewhere way farther than they've ever thought to be how did they get there did it just move that quick like species often don't move that quickly especially when you're looking at um, slow moving animals that are limited by uh, like they can't fly like birds and they uh, have to hibernate half the year. Um, so like did someone potentially carry that bullfrog or whatever up there and then it escaped or it got whatever, whatever the method of transport is, but it's definitely a unique thing to look at. And I think if it's, if they have the habitat available and the temperatures are uh, rising enough that they can survive there, then I don't see why they wouldn't be able to, move further north and i think that supports that completely it's just a matter of uh whether or not those species have too many um like barricades in the way they can't get over but yeah well i mean yeah. it's just i mean if, if climate change is like almost completely terrible there's there's a couple of yeah. you know yeah. like you know guys like us we can now maybe we'll take in the way. future yeah. we'll we'll maybe we'll see more uh yeah. more reptiles and amphibians than well not amphibians that's not going to change for them but like maybe more reptiles in canada that'll be like hey i'll <laughs> be like, more that yeah one <laughs> Well, it's uh, been absolutely a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Likewise. So I, we definitely have to do this again, especially when you're, when you're done with your degree. I would love to hear, you know, sure. what your final, what your research question finally was, and what you discovered. Yep. It's, uh, it's a really interesting time to be doing um, herpetology. I mean, there's like all these things. Like we, we just found out like snakes play. They, yeah. they they do all the they're much smarter than we thought. They yep. re remember things. Uh, they have, as you said, like just freaky spatial awareness. I mean, mm -hmm. to be able to forage for miles and miles and then find exactly the same hibernacula at the <laughs> end of the season, just in time before it gets too cold, that's pretty amazing. I mean, I I get lost walking around my own city without, <laughs> without Google Maps. I mean, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's an inter really interesting field. So I I hope uh, you have a great end of the summer. I know you're like me. You're probably feeling very sad that it's almost over. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm grateful I got to work in it though with the global pandemic and all that. So. And you still got to do it. It was still still good. Yep. Polar vortex global pandemic. There's not keeping me down. <laughs> wow. 
Well, when this definitely, it, when the pandemic is done, I am definitely going to at some point um, get down there to your neck of the woods in Ontario and go uh, go flipping with you at some point. <laughs> so, yes, more than uh, to just let me know. I shall. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and thank I'll you, talk John. to you later. Thanks. Talk to you later.